which you have prepared in the presence of all people. How do you see that? He's a man like we are, and he saw that, looking at this baby. Um, and then he says to Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many news, and he saw the violence that was going to come. And he described powers of sight like that. Um, so, seeing is not a small thing. I just want to recall a couple of more instances because it's so central to what we're doing. Um, the Jews saw a miracle performed by God when he parted the Red Sea. Was there anything like that in history before or since? A sea parted for a whole people so that a whole people could pass through? A whole people witnessed a miracle, and it was because of that miracle that their lives were saved. They get on the sea, or on the land on the other side, and what happens shortly after that? They start complaining and grumbling. Um, what happens to their sight? An extraordinary thing was given to them. Um, some people go to Christ in desperation. We know that. To be healed. Um, to raise somebody from the dead. Simeon saw. He was given a special life. To see Christ in the presentation. Um, special powers are given to human beings that make them capable of seeing things others aren't. When Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, John jumps in, his, in her womb. He's just a newborn. That's extraordinary, no? I mean, we can't pass that stuff off. He's, he's, he's not even of the age of conceptualizing things, and he knows. So God has given him a special power in the womb to see something. Some of us, most of us, I don't think, see through the course of our lives. Um, one of my favorites is Peter. Um, I love this scene. I don't know if Father's I may be heretical on this, but um, I love this scene when the disciples get out and they return to Christ. And he says, who do they say I am? That is, who? Do they see me? Who do they say I am? And they, they can't answer, they don't know. And he says to them, who do you say I am? And they can't answer. And then Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. In the literature that we read in the, in the pagan that I've been describing to you, there's something that takes place that's actually contemporary to our church and nobody knows about it. It's called taking the auspices. Taking the auspices. Write that down. Remember, taking the auspices. In the ancient period, when somebody had an omen or revelation, when they had an omen or revelation, they waited to have a confirmation. Because we know that people with active religious imagination can sometimes think they're seeing something when they're not. It just happens all the time. How do you know? The church has to confirm all appearances. You know that, because otherwise the church would be destroyed in terms of the activity of people seeing them. Taking the auspices means an omen is given and you have to wait to get it confirmed. It happens immediately in the Odyssey. Um, one of my favorites is in the Odyssey. The night before Odysseus does battle with the suitors, he asks for an omen and Zeus thunders. And then he waits for a confirmation. And the confirmation is given in the next minute. He hears a, maid, a woman one of the maidservants from the house, screaming out, saying, oh, I wish these suitors would die. 
because they've been grinding our knees for these 10 years. That is, they've been eating us up, grinding us down, eating us out of house. We know we need people to do that. The interesting thing about that, which a lot of people don't see, is that's, a, that's an exact image of the Cyclops. Because if you know the suitors, you, you know the Odyssey, you know that the Cyclops eat the diseases men. So that's a prefiguration of what men actually do to people. Wear them out, eat them out of house, use them. Odysseus asks for an omen, it's given, thunder, and then suddenly this woman honors him. Take a pure oh, I wish somebody would do away with these. Take any of the auspices, okay? In the old, this is what's amazing. In the ancient world, taking the auspices is this exchange between men and God. An omen is given, confirmation is waiting for, it's given, and, and the sacredness of the moment is confirmed. In this moment, here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. In this moment, Christ says to the disciples, who do they say? What do they say? They don't know. Peter, who do you say? He says, you are the Christ. And Christ says, nobody did that. That came from the Spirit. The interesting thing there is, Peter gives what is an omen, a prophetic moment. You are the Christ. Who confirms it? God himself. It's what sometimes I think, in some ways, that to me is almost the beginning of it. It's close to Peter giving the keys, but that's an extraordinary moment. Do the other disciples see it? Peter's just like you and me. He's, you know, he's speaking words like other human beings. But what's going on is amazing. He sees something that nobody else does. So this whole thing about seeing is not small. I'm going to have to skip things here because I'm, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, so. Let me give another rule. One of the rules in our faith that's related to seeing is taste and see. Okay, taste and see. The condition of seeing is taste. And let me stop for a minute because lots of I, you didn't know that you were going to come here and suffer from an English teacher. Um, <laughs> taste and see. What does that mean? Taste and see. I want to take a second. We hear that all the time. Don't give it a thought. There's two imperatives, right? Taste, see, eat, drink. You got two imperatives: taste and see. I'm really asking now because I'm going to be on you guys all night. Nobody's going to escape. If you're going to up and put you out of all your problems. What does taste and see mean? Seriously, I'm asking seriously. Taste and see. Because the focus of this one. Yeah. Experience. So, sorry. Experience and believe. Experience and believe. Yeah. I have so missed you. It takes a body to get you back in the church. Anybody else taste this? Or to take it in and then like internalize. Taste and see. You can look at his two imperatives like drink and eat. You can also say one thing follows the other as its condition. If you taste this, you will see. Taste and see. Yeah? If you do this, this will happen. 
right? Taste and see, find out. What's the taste at issue here? What's the taste referring to? What taste is finally going to answer the longing to see? Bread of life. Yeah? There's only one food that will answer that taste and see. We go, we go to church, hopefully, because we believe that when we eat that bread, Christ is in us. Yeah? So taste and see. Certain things we do will affect our sight. Taste, it's saying, if you do this, taste and see. You take this food into you, a new kind of sight. But you have to do that. I want to go back to one more of the examples that I gave you. Now this is from John because it, to me it's, it's absolutely foundational for everything we're doing. This is John. I just wanted one more example of this. Instance of see. This is John. First John 3.2. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to take a minute again. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How do you guys understand that? What does that mean? When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. The condition of having that experience with Christ is seen, for we shall see him as he is. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm going to move this over to the middle so I get closer to you guys over here. Hey, what do you say? Have any thoughts? I think to me it's when you're in heaven and you see him as he is. Big surprise. Yeah, good. In our, mortal, in our mortal bodies, can we see Christ as he is? Let me put it this way. Christ is the word, right? He, we believe he made, he's the means of creation. It was by him, that's John. He's the word. He, he, so he's present, visible, right in the creation. He created the sun. Can any human being look at the sun? And yet we're going to reach a condition of being able to see him. 
Now, I, that's going to sound strange to a lot of you. Those of you who are in the course, I mean, shouldn't be a surprise because we're at that point in the Paradiso where you know Dante's entered the sun. And Beatrice looks up and the sun's not blinded. But we're prepared for it. I mean, I, I can't go into the class right now, but those of you in the class will know that. By that point, he's learned, he's learned to see differently. He can see realities that he could never have seen in a human body the way we do here on Earth. But it's another way of saying this, if I'm reading this correctly. When we go to church to receive the Eucharist, do we understand that the person we're taking in is that person? That extraordinary. You know, it gets reduced to, uh-oh, gets reduced to a wafer. You know, we look at this wafer and say it's a wafer of the Protestant second world. Father, yeah, am I missing something here? No, 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 I was just going to say, like, I mean, one of the things you don't hear at Mass because the priest says it uh, quietly is as he mixes the water and the wine. And he says, maybe uh, through this water and wine, we, we share the divinity of Christ as we share in our community. So, in some sense, the whole notion of looking at the Eucharist, you can see peace of record, you can see Jesus Christ coming into those eyes of faith, but in that, where we share the divinity of Christ, as he shared in our humanity, there's a term that I would encourage you not to look up on the internet, uh, called deification. But there is a deification, and that's probably a class that has been taught to you. Don't look it up on the internet, because you're going to see stuff that we don't believe. Yeah. But, uh, we do believe as Catholics we continue to share in the divinity of Christ as we share in our community. Um, but all of that is just in the eyes of Christ. The other word that the um, ancient church fathers used was theiosis. It's exactly what fathers of theiosis, which means um, God came down and took on our human form so that we could take on a divine form so that the more we participate in the sacraments, the more like God-like we become. We become adopted sons of God. We share His divinity. Yeah, I just... What I'm trying to do in some ways that I think you can all tell is it's often when we go to communion, we take these things for granted. We get used to them. It's a wafer, or we know it's Christ. Do, do, we, do we have the appreciation that we should have for what we mean when we say it's Christ? But, um, I was going to say, I'll give you an example when you get out into the parking lot. How can I get there? Are you already there? <laughs> You, you and Father are getting ahead of me here. Okay, one, one last thing, definition, and then the overarching question. Definition. We're not going to have time for this. The definition is the word... The definition is the... It's this early to talk about it, showing you the clock. She's had too much experience with this. Um... The definition is, is of the word apophatic. It's, it's going to be going. Um, apophatic in the world of theology refers to a knowledge by negation, the via negativa, the knowing something by the things we don't know about him. 
There are two ways of approaching God, the way of affirmation or the way of negation. And the empathetic is, is a way of knowing, usually peculiar to mystics, okay? But I want to make a claim here um, that I want everybody to hold on to because it's a word I'm going to, it's going to come up a number of times in some of the points that I want to make. Um, one of the things that I'd like to say about literature, there's not enough time to go into it, is this. Most people read literature or go to a movie thinking, that's a copy of reality. It's, it's an imitation of reality. It's a, that's not true. It's, it's never true. It, it gives us a rendering of reality, but it's never a copy. Even though it refers to the world and takes us back to the world, it leaves us in its own space. So while we're reading, we're returned to the world, yeah? We're not, in, we're not in philosophy or theology or science or physics. We're back in the world. We're undergoing some crisis with another human being, whatever it is, Dante or Achilles and the Iliad, uh, whatever it is, whatever story we're reading. Um, we're in that story while we're in the world at the same time, as if there was something natural to be in two worlds at the same time. So literature is a strange thing. It takes us into that world, returns us to the world, but separates us at the same time, okay? So we're there and not there. We're there and not there. Here are some of the ways T.S. Eliot referred to this there and not there. It's the part I'm going to get to it in the Eucharist. T.S. Eliot used the most important poet of the 20th century in, in the last of his great works, The Four Quartets, talks about this there and not there in a number of different ways. Let me just give you some of the phrases. At the still point of the turning world, that's Christ. That's the Logos. There is not a place in this world in which he doesn't exist at its center. He's the creator. He holds everything in being. That's the image, the still point, okay? At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I cannot say there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. That still point is in time and out. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own, and where you are is where you are not. The point where the dance is, he cannot say where. Where the end is the beginning, he says, in my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning. We came from God, where you are, where you are not, the moment in and out of time, I am here or there or elsewhere in the beginning. And a place where one kneels to pray and where the intersection of the timeless moment is England 
and nowhere, never, and always. All of those point to Christ. Remember, he's speaking to a non-Christian audience. If you were to use Christ, close the book for a while. Um, but here's the, the reason I want to go through that. Literature is something I love because of the way it helps me see things. But here's the connection I wanted to make. So literature gives us an apophatic place. We're in that book. We're in the world, not of it somehow. It's a strange place. Okay? It points us to the world. We're going to see that in a moment with the poems that I'll do with you. It points us to the world, it helps us to see it, and yet we're not in that world. What happens when we take the Eucharist? <laughs> this is, um, when we take the Eucharist, I feel really nervous like I've never had to speak with a priest. I always wonder if I'm getting close to an edge of, when we take the Eucharist, Christ is in us. Christ is in us. That is, our Father, our heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's the opening prayer, right? When we take the Eucharist, Christ is in us. I'm going to say, nervously right now, we're in the kingdom. He's in us. This person, we can't look at the Son, we fathers, we, we can't look at the Son, right? For we shall be, we will be like him, for we see, see him as he is. We're not in that condition. How do we get there? How do, how do we get there? Um, the only way that I know is by going to Mass and taking the Eucharist. But when we go to the Eucharist and take it, do we really know what we're receiving? This is the creator of the world who could see the sun. We can't. When we take the Eucharist, we're in his kingdom. When we walk out to the parking lot to return to our cars, how many of us know that we're in a space where we are and we are not. We're in this apathetic space. All the apathetic things I've just read from Elliot. You follow me? Where you are is where you are not. What in the world is that? I mean, most people look at it and get, their eyes will get screwy and they're looking at you and there's something wrong with you. That's where we're supposed to be. Wherever we are after that point, we are in his kingdom. Do we live that? Even with our sins, are we there? Is, do, we, do we make a place for mystery in our life knowing he's there? Okay? Let me stop for a second. I want to go to the four points, but those are the, that's the sort of context. But let me stop. Any questions? Or, or rebuttals? Or, <laughs> I get nervous when I'm, I'm not a theologian, but. Any, any questions at this, at this point? Okay, the four, if you look at the outline, there are four, four topics, four areas. Beginnings, origins, uh, what's in the way of seeing them, how do we recover our sight, what can we see once we do recover them? Um, the very first one, the Trinity. Okay, here's my assertion about the first ones. If you look at the outline, you'll see, under the outline, it says Trinity, Cross, Love, and Inheritance. My claim is those, those four things are not up for discussion. They are fixed. They're there. That's our reality. That's where we begin. 
If anybody wants to argue, see Father after Mass. <laughs> if anybody wants to argue, we're, we're going back to something right now I can't take up at this point. I'm glad to take this up because I love talking about these things. But my claim right now is that those are fixed. Those are our opinion things. Those are the things, those are our first principles. If, you, if those are up for doubt, then everything's up for doubt. Okay? So let me take the Trinity. We're made in the image of God. We all know that. We're made in the image of God. Um, if we're made in the image of God, we are Trinitarian by nature. By nature. If I can do this quickly, this Trinity Sunday, be patient with me. We're made in God's image. We're Trinitarian. I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm assuming all of you can relate to it. When I have an idea in my head, some light goes on me, and I want to write a paper. Right? Where did that, idea, that light come from? You know, trusting all of you have written papers, you know that when you get an idea, you've got to write it down. And you'll write it and you'll say, no, that's not quite it. Or you'll make a mistake and scratch it out and say that. And you keep working until you finally get it and say, ah, that's that insight, that intuition. Okay? That light is the Father. Giving it a body is the incarnation. Huh? We have... We, we are not angels. We cannot live in those lights, in thought, because thought's immaterial. doesn't have a body. We've got to give it a body. You know that. Whatever we do in life, we've got to give it a material form to work on it, whatever it is, engineering, physics, you name it. So that light is the Father. The, the, giving it a body is the incarnation, is the Son. The power with which I express that is the Spirit. That's an exact description of the Trinity. Right? Son proceeds from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son. I'm going to come to that in a second. Here's, here's um, the more important thing for me. We're made in God's image. We're Trinitarian. We were meant to love and to be loved. And to express that love with power. Mean it. Mean it. Uh, so what are the implications of that? We're, we're Trinitarian in nature. We know that the three persons of the Trinity indwell perfectly with one another. This is so crucial. So crucial. Sorry. Now I need to show you. Um, going. The, the three persons are indwelling, right? One with the other. Perfect, right? One God, three persons. When the Father conceived of himself, when he looks to himself to conceive, that's his Son. It's an exact image of himself. Not made, he's co-eternal, right? He's one with the Father. The love between them is the Spirit. One God, three persons. God conceived of himself, that's his Son. The love between them, that's the Spirit. There cannot be anything other than persons in the Trinity. And there can only be three. The Father conceiving himself, the love between them. That's it. Yeah? They perfectly indwell with each other. This is St. Thomas. In the Trinity, because God doesn't have a body, is one of them less than the other two? I'm asking a question, serious here. Is two of them more than one? Oh, you all good. Wow. You didn't hesitate. I thought that would be new to lots of you. Wow. 
I thought I was going to be smart here, but um, does everybody sees that, right? They're perfectly indwelling. One's not less than two. In here, in our world, one is less than two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, two is more than one. Not there. They are perfectly indwelling with one with another. We're made in their image. If we're to love like God, it means finally we're to be indwelling with each other. Those of you who've been reading the Divine Comedy know in the Paradiso that Beatrice knows Dante's thought before she even thinks it. And there are these constant reflexive verbs. I am, God is in othering, in Godding you, I am in youing. There is not a subject-object dichotomy there the way there is here. Yeah? Our bodies, we separate ourselves. Don't touch me, it's my space. As you move closer to God, indwelling becomes more part of everything you do. The term in the church for marriage is one flesh. According to physics, that's absurd. Two bodies can't occupy the same space. We're not talking about just a physical reality, even though it's real for us. But spiritually, we're called to be indwelling one with another, to love one another. And I'm hoping, I'm trusting everybody's seeing the danger of this, the risk or adventure to, to enter, to let another person enter into your life for you to be allowed to enter this, another person's life, is risky, it's dangerous. We have to take on each other's sins, we have to learn to help each other get past them. There's a whole work to be done if we're going to indwell, but that's our end. In heaven, there will be nothing but each one of us will be who we are and carrying everybody there. Can you imagine a greater spectacle in the world? And I'm back to Christ in the Eucharist. In the Paradiso, when one person enters heaven, he's related immediately to everybody. How could it be otherwise? In heaven. Right? If that's so, imagine the person who created that. Do we carry that when we go to the Eucharist? That that's what we're taking into us. Why are we not going to church? Um, but here's my question. Go back, I want to pick up with the Trinity a minute more, but here's my question. Christ is the Word. He made creation. He's everywhere present in the world outside. He's transcendent. He's imminent. He's both outside and in. Um, do we see Him everywhere? Truly, do we see Christ everywhere? Do we even see Him in church? I'm sorry if that's offensive to anybody right now. In Merchant of Venice, which is one of the plays we did in our group, <laughs> <laughs> um, Merchant of Venice is one of my favorite plays, but um, the beginning of the play, and it begins with Antonio, who's so sad, and two of his friends come up, and um, they think that everything. The only thing that's meaningful of life is making money, getting ahead, and and um, thanks. Um, one of the friends says, "Anthony, the reason you're so sad is because and he's related to so, If I have all of my ventures at sea, 
I'd be sad too. Because it's a venture capitalist, this is our world, as Shakespeare knew it really well. This is our world. If all of my ventures were, see, I'd be sad too. If I went to church and I looked at the stone edifice, the altar, he'd be thinking about the rocks that my ships would crash into. How many of us go to Mass and suddenly we'll see something on our mind is suddenly commercial world, family problems. In that moment of Mass, we're supposed to be at that still point between this world and the next. How many of us in church are really fully moving towards the Eucharist? You know, so that when we receive, we're entering into it in the sense in which I'm talking about it now. Um, so, do we find Christ everywhere? Um, we have this great longing as the deer parts for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, oh my God. My soul thirsts for the deer, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, my God. We sing the song like a deer that longs for running streams. Wish I could help you. My soul longs for you, my God. We know that. Um, we have this longing for God. So I go back to my question, what's in the way? God made everything. Why don't we see Him? If we learn to see Him everywhere, will we bring more of what we do see of Him in church? If our love for Christ were deep and genuine, we wouldn't need more of a reason to be in church. If we learn to see Him everywhere, will there be more of Him to see when we come to church? Is that clear? If we learn to see Him everywhere, that he is behind everything. When we come to church, will we, will we bring more of him to what we do? And if we learn to see him everywhere, will we see that there's more of him in the Eucharist than we sometimes allow because we take it for granted? Um, Diaspora. 
And Dante is confused when he hears the statement, how can um, a just punishment be avenged? If it's just, it shouldn't be avenged, yeah? So is, is everybody following? You shouldn't avenge something that was justly done. You should let alone and say it's good. It's settled. Dante can understand it, and Beatrice gives him this explanation, which is the, the finest explanation I have ever heard. This is from St. Thomas and Dante. It's the finest explanation of the cross that I know of that goes to what I think is the central, the burden, the greatest burden most of us face in this world. Um, she says, this is in Canto 7, Now listen to my reasoning. Once joined with its first cause, this nature was pure and good. But by itself, by its own act, having abandoned truth in the true life, out of God's holy garden, it was chaste. Then, if the crucifixion be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. Is that clear, what I just read? If you look at the nature assumed, no act was ever more just in the world. Okay? Um, just, as some, just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who endured it, with whom the other nature was combined. Now hold on just for a second. Here's the problem. We sinned against God. It's beginning theology, of course. We sinned against God, right? How can a human being atone give satisfaction for a sin against God? He's infinite, we're finite. <clears throat> Can't be done, right? So the effects were, um, we're either to dis be interested in St. Thomas. We're, man's left damned forever. Or God just dismisses it, forgives him. Okay? Let me take a second. Why didn't God take this? I mean, we know the first because he loved us. He loved us so much he sent his son. Why didn't he do the second? Why didn't you just let it go? Could have done that. We'd already shown how weak we were because we sinned against him. If he let it go, what's, what's likely to happen? What would have been likely to happen? Maybe I'm making them too much. You can do it again. Do it again. I mean, doesn't that make sense? It does. I hope that makes sense. Um, if, if, if God had done either of those, we wouldn't have answered anything. He loved us, I mean, enough to send his son. That's from John 2. He chose a middle way, and this, by the way, this goes to Aristotle, St. Thomas, the medium is the virtue between two extremes. He chose a middle course. There's only one way that that act, that injustice could have been satisfied. Only if a God, because it would have required a God to answer for a sin against God, took on the nature of man and became a man. Is that clear? That's an amazing, because nothing else would have done. Could a man have done it? Or could a God have done it by himself? No. So if you look at the nature assumed, no act was more unjust. I'm sorry, more just. I hope that's clear. We had to give satisfaction for a sin we couldn't. A justice had to be done. So, in terms of the nature Christ assumed, no act was more just. He made justice real in the world. It's absolutely crucial to see that. There's nothing Christ did. I came to fulfill the law. 
There's nothing he did that would have, against, would have gone against his father. How could he? They were indwelling together in eternity. His father's always been one with him. He was. He said, in me you see the father. So if you look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. If you look at the person who assumed it, because he was innocent, no act, sorry, if you look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. If you look at the person, no act was more unjust. In that theology, it seems to me, um, we have what I take to be one of the greatest problems in the world. We're asked to bring a justice to everything we do and bring a mercy to it that nobody deserves. How easy is that? We are not asked to overlook justice. Christ did The hardship, I mean, the, it seems to me, the predicament he left us with is we have got to work to be just, but we have to bring to those efforts, to whatever we do, people, a mercy they don't deserve. I hope I said that strongly enough because it seems to me if I'm, you, I'm, I'm going to wait a minute to get your response. How, how easy is that to do? I mean, look at our family, our marriages, um, day, day by day by hour by hour stuff that we do in the day. How easy is that to do? Nobody can forgive but God. That's why the Jews condemned him, because he said he could forgive. Only God could forgive. There's no way for us to give a mercy without his help. That's a divine act. We're asked to bring justice to our world and also a, a mercy people don't deserve that we only have if we are with him. And I'm assuming you understand the difficulty. That's a cross for anyone else. It means somehow dying to do this. But I, I hope, I, I, I want to stress this because I, I don't, I mean, I see the church priests and Catholics, Protestants for sure, tripping all over this everywhere. We are supposed to bring justice and mercy together. That's what Christ did. And obviously, if you think about it, that's not easy. But that's the cross part of this. Let me stop for a second. Any, any questions or Difficult, difficulties with this. I wish we had time to go into what we don't. Um, but let me do one thing. Um, no questions on this. I can't believe there are no questions. <laughs> That's one of the naughtiest problems. I, 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 when I look at all the Shakespeare works or Dante or Mel, you know, the greatest, they're the ones who, who go to the bottom of this in ways that each century there's a new poet who will speak to the circumstances of his time, but they're always going to this, the same, how do we love, how do we bring Christ's love in a world where there's so much injustice and, uh, and going to extremes? Avoiding the cross, really. But, um, let me let me go to one more thing in the in that first section. <laughs> We're not going to get out of the first section. The inheritance or tradition. One of the things that's peculiar to Catholic Church is that it takes that so seriously. Our tradition, um, we don't carry just the present encounter of Christ in us. 
we carry our whole past that informs the way our minds and our hearts work. I want to just mention one of them here because it's one that so easily gets ignored, and to me it's sad that it does. Um, one of the things that the Jews, as a people, one of the things most on their minds, one of the things that defined them as a people, was the desire to see the face of God. That runs through the Psalms, they wanted to see the face of God. So, um, we have things like this. Um, One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. Um, For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteousness, the upright shall behold His face. Restore us, O Lord, close, God close. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. To be in the presence of his face, to see his face, the book we call the Beatific Vision. Um, I want to look at this notion that the Jews had this word called Shekinah, which means the light of God is effulgence. So to be in his presence is to be enveloped in that light, to be one. And everybody in his presence would share in that light. Um, so this space, this place that the Jews talked about, seems like the kind of thing we hear in fairy tales. Once upon a time, far, far away, you know, not yet here. Um, but with the Jews, it was real, it was in time. That's one of the things that distinguishes it from fairy tales or things we can say about them. Um, it's real, it's rooted in natural history, and it carries with it the nine ten prerogatives um, of Israel. This is from Paul. These are the prerogatives given to the Jews. This is part of our tradition. It's part of our history. Crisis at the end. But hold on. This is from St. Paul. These are the nine prerogatives. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were made as adopted sons. Too. They bear the name of Israel, or God's loved ones, those with whom he contends or looks after. They were given both the patriarchs and the messianic promises. Salvation is from the Jews. That's not changed. That's Paul. Salvation is with them. We're waiting for something. Um, They were allowed the experience of the Shekinah, the glory or supernatural radiance in which the ark and the temple were enveloped in times. They were held responsible for their actions and offered protections in all covenants. They were gifted with the tablets and the Torah. From out of the lightning in Sinai, they were offered help in the revealed forms of worship, practices that so much carry over in tradition. Um, and finally, they were given Christ, the promised Messiah and Lord of the universe, who brought to completion the line running from Abraham and the early patriarchs through David to the young Jewish virgin who gave him birth. That's the Jewish tradition. It's the tradition on which which ours rests. At the end of it, however, is Christ, we know, is the Messiah. He brought it to fulfillment. Once again, when we go to the Eucharist, are we aware that that whole Jewish lineage is carried, realized in Him? A whole history um, embodied. Now I want to, if you can pull out two of the poems, 
kingfishers and, and the window when we pull it out. Remember, I, I said that this tradition is not only carried, conducted, conveyed in the nine prerogatives of Israel, it's also in things, in things, um, and in time, in history, in things. So, we've got things like this in the Old Testament. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou crownest the year with thy bounty. The pastures of the wilderness drip. He goes on and on. The heavens tell the glory of God. The firmament makes his hand Day to day, for forth speech. Listen to this. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor there are words, nor are there, their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth. There's the apophatic. Everything speaks. Everything in the world speaks past because it was made by God, and yet we don't hear it. Make a joyful noise to the earth, all the earth, sing the glory of his name. We go on and on. All those songs celebrating the beauty of things. So the Shekinah, this radiance, is present in everything. Does the modern world look at things that way? In the modern world, we've quantified everything mathematically, so we see it in terms of its quantity. We don't hear it, we don't see it. Um, take a look at um, Hopkins, the window, and this kingfish. Do you all have that poem? I'm going to try to be brief because they're kind of getting short, but as these are both by Gerard Manning Hopkins, who was a Catholic priest, an extraordinary, extraordinary poet, converted, he was a Protestant in the 19th century and converted. As kingfishers catch fire, as kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and round the wells, you can hear the bouncing of the stone. As tumble over rim and round the wells, stones ring. Like each tough string tells, each hung bell's bow, swung font, swung finds tongue to fling out rocks. You know that the, the tongue is both a name for that, not only what we speak, but it names a part of the bell. So the bell is speaking. Um, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out rocks name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same feels out. That being indoors, each one dwells itself, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, What I do is me, for that I came. This is that subject economy, object economy I talked about a minute ago. When we look at things, we objectify them. What Hopkins is saying is just exactly what St. Francis said, brother, son, sister, moon. He's saying, Each thing is a subject in its own right. Do we see it that way? I'm going to speak for my wife now for a second. She loves flowers. She treats flowers as if they have a self. There are lots of people who look at trees just to destroy them for the lumber they'll get. We need lumber. But do people really see that each thing in creation is a subject in its own right? St. Thomas had a word for it. Because he saw that each thing in existence was a subject in itself, even though we tend to objectify that. Um, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man justices keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, but in God's eye he is Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs, and in eyes not his, 
to the Father through the features of men's faces. Everything in nature speaks. This poem is a celebration. It's giving the voices of things. Kingfisher, the stone going down the well, the bell ringing. Each one is speaking in itself. Do we hear? Do we see that Christ is present? The Wind Hover, I think it's probably his most famous. It's, it's the first poem that made me aware of him that attached me you know, from the very beginning. The Wind Hover. This is a poem written after he went out in the morning and looked in the sky to saw a wind hover. He's a priest now. He's been out for a long walk in the dawn. He walks, sees a wind hover flying, okay, and then goes home and writes this poem. Notice all the allusions to religion, the wimple of the nun. The, the prince, the heir to the kingdom, the sun's coming up. The bird is like an image of Christ, the heir. I'm not going to go through it all, but just hold on to that while I read it. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin. Dapple dawn brought falcon in his riding of the road level underneath him, steady air. And striding high there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off. Uh, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the Chiba, the master of the Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, cried plume here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from me then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my shenanigan. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down cilia shine, and blue bleak embers on my dear fall, gall themselves and gash blue. The reason for the danger, I think, when he says, My heart in hiding and uh, more dangerous, I think because he's a priest and he knows how susceptible he is to the beauty of things. That he, he, he's so sensitive and he's aware of What's going on in this poem? Those of you who've been in class, be still. What's going on in this poem? What's going on? Remember, I just read all those passages about the Shekinah of the Jews, the effulgence in things, that God is there, and the kingfishers that he's, he's celebrating the, uh, you know, the thingness of each thing, that each thing has a voice, like St. Saint, Francis, Saint brother, son, sister, moon, the, Francis loved creation, like they were relatives to one another. <coughs> He's recalling this moment when the bird is in the air and suddenly for a moment he catches the wind and stops. It's like for a moment the bird masters the wind. You know, the wind just holds it. And he says of that moment, group, Brute beauty and valor and act of air cried, boom, here, and notice how it stops on this next word, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times for the lovely and more dangerous will I show you. At that moment, that word buckle has two meanings. It means buckle all things together, the pride, the valor, all of it. It also means collapse. Because right at that moment when he masters the air, he collapses. So in that moment, Hopkins is showing something in nature participating in the crucifixion. But there's this great beauty, this mastery of this thing, but at that moment, it 
buckets, showing the limits of the, of the natural. But as a celebration of this beautiful creature, I mean, everybody else, imagine what anybody else going out, they'd see a bird in the sky. That's all it is. Well, truly, I mean, it's a bird. But he knows that there's nothing in creation that doesn't bear the stamp of Christ. It's all, it all images. Do we see it? When we go to the Eucharist, are we aware that he, he was the creator of all of this, that that's what we're taking in? Um, for, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like him, for we shall see him. Okay, I'm going to... Um, I was planning to do some other things, but um, time is about up. So I'm going to do one thing. You know, thought I'd end up doing one of those, but here. I want to leave uh, here. So if you here, take a look at the picture that I gave you guys while we're here doing this game. I've been talking about things and how things reveal God when we see Christ's presence in the world. Oh, it wasn't there? No. Here, let me just, here, I'm just, if you could all, focus, just, I'm going to take a minute, just here. You all see this picture? It's called St. Gregory's Mass. I'm sorry, I, I would wish you had it, um, but. Can we pass it around? I can't. Well, I will in a second. Here, just, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it yeah, probably. Here, can you just take a look at it? You'll see it. You can probably see it. Let me pass it around. But here's the thing. Um, when you look at it, this is unfair because you don't have a copy in front of you. When you look at it, what do you see? Can you just pass it around quickly? When you look at it, I'm really serious. What do you see? Mass. There's a mass, for sure. Christ. Yeah. Christ. Yeah. An idea in an idea in somebody's head, or actually present. Present. Actually present. Okay. Here's where this is going. You. Here's my. Here's. This, everybody, pay attention for a second. How many? These are priests, bishops. These are priests. How many, how many people celebrating this Mass? This, these are religious orders. How many people actually see Christ in that picture? How many people see him? Who? I, I'm sorry, we don't have the, we're supposed to be included in this. It's a, it's a, it's a, here, by the way, just so you know, just so you know. Get past my own pride here for a minute. The first time I saw this picture, I didn't see it. I looked at that picture and thought, oh, beautiful picture. It's a woodcutter. It's a woodcutter. Yeah, it's a woodcutter. It's a beautiful picture, and I missed it. I missed it entirely. What's the picture saying? It's about seeing. 
Priests are so caught up in the rituals of the moment, in the rituals, that they don't see Christ. There's only one person in that picture that actually sees him. That's St. Gregory. The point I want to make here is so often we think we see things. First, I, I'm speaking for myself. First time I looked at that picture, I thought, what a beautiful picture. And then when I saw it, it knocked me over. I realized I had seen it. So once again, I'm going back to the Shekinah. There's this effulgence in things. We, here's the problem with us. We, all of us have good eyes. We can all see each other really well right now. Yeah? We think there's nothing wrong with us. But there is. If we're not seeing Christ, if we're not open in some way, um, to seeing that there's more there than to see, Dante, um, in the top of the Purgatorium, um, says, I climb to cure my blindness. I wish there were more time, because what I'd like to do is, is go through the Purgatory. I think what I'm going to do, I, I hope I haven't chased you all away. Next, I'm going to give another talk in two weeks. I'm going to pick up the pur Purgatory, because I'm going to talk about what's wrong with the world, and give you... Dante, the church's answer to how we, how we cure ourselves of our blindness. Okay. Here, I want to close with one thing. Um, um, I, there was so much more to show you how unreal I am at that time. Here, I want to close with one thing. Um, by the way, I think these things are being needed. I, oh, I didn't say this to you, that when I started this class, we, um, we were taking it on audio, so the classes are online, available. To, if you um, Google Literature's Prophecy, you'll go to the course. Um, by the way, any of you who are new, I, it would be welcome anytime. Anytime you want to come in, join us. It would be good to have you. But it's available online, and you've got all the printed materials, too. There's a section where all of the pr printed materials that I do are available. So. You've got the audios for all the courses. You've also got the printed materials, so it's all free if you're interested. I had wanted to do the purgatory, but there's, we don't have time. I'm, I'd like to leave with the two readings because they go to this question about how much we see and don't see when we think we do. We saw them kingfisher catch fire and wind thunder. You know, one's about kingfishers and bells ringing and stones falling and it's also about it's also about human beings who love justice who justice that's what they do they just it's a verb not, they're justicing um, you could say mercy this would be a good day for you know, find mercy but um, I wanted to go through the purgatory because in the purgatory we're given the way to answer this blindness, what we do to, to help us to see better so that we can see Christ in each other as we are. Um, I'm going to put that off until the next time. What I'd like to do is close with the two things that I wanted to close with. Um, turn to um, Schnackenberg's Supernatural Love. 
I'm going to read a passage from uh, Farrah Connors, The Violent Buried Away, and I want to read Supernatural Love, and we'll close on this, but I want to make this comment before we do. Remember that quote that I, that I read earlier from John, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We're in this earthly body. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's our task, to take on our sins, all of us, to get better. Um, that's our call. So let me partly answer the question that I asked earlier, but, and then I want to read these two passages. I can't tell you myself how we'll appear in response to John's passage, what we will be like, and how we'll see others. What I believe is what Christ in Scripture tells us. We know from Scripture that Christ was transfigured. Um, the disciples saw it, and they were amazed by that. We have some sense that whatever form we take in the next particularly with the resurrection of the body, will be glorified. It won't be like this. Um, if we're in the presence of Christ and He created the universe and He could look at the sun, we're going to be looking at a, a light much greater, an effulgence much more blinding, and not be, and take a joy in it. And we know from Paul, who visited the third heaven, I have not seen, here have not heard. So there's all this stuff about this extraordinary glory awaiting us. Um, transfiguration falls, I have not seen here. Protestants would demean the body. Remember, taste and see. The great theme of Dante's Paradiso is a glorification of the human person in the body. Christ took on our bodies. We're not angels. We're not angels. St. Thomas, we are the most glorious thing in creation. We cannot, should not want to deny our bodies. That's who we are. We cannot make ourselves angelic. Shouldn't want to. The great glory should be we're human beings. Everything about the modern world demeans it. The Protestants look down on the Calvin hated the body. Scientists look at the bodies for evolution. We're nothing. Um, When the Protestant looks at me, he demeans the body. They say, accept Jesus, just accept Jesus. Yes. But it's you, I argue, and it's half Aryan. They're making Christ just a person. All these other things? Who sees them? We should see them as Catholics because we're pre presented with stuff that glorify everything about our world. Walk into a Protestant meeting house. All this is new, it's not here. Man is the greatest thing in creation, that's St. Thomas. Everything about the modern world except our faith demeans our nature. Darwin, Freud, thought everything was from sexual perverse instincts. Evolution. Christ took on our nature. That's how much he loved us. Poetry isn't God's divine mercy. It's not. I don't want to confuse the two. But it's a grace in this sense. It helps make us aware that there's a lot we don't see, we don't feel. It's a reminder of the goodness in the world that helps us. It's generous. It's giving us things to help our eyes. But I mean, you know, one of the reasons for reading these things. 
In small ways, it's like a mercy. It helps move us along in our efforts to ask Christ for His mercy, to take seriously our call. However poorly we're to do it, we're still called to be priests, prophets, kings. I've been calling these poets prophetic. Now I want to end with two things that deal directly with prophecy. Take a look at Supernatural Love. One of my favorite poems. Okay. This Read it. (laughs) She pricks herself with a needle. The father, who's an academic, is off in his head looking at the dictionary while his four-year-old daughter is undergoing this experience. So keep those things on your mind as I read. And then this question. What do you see? My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamp-lit answer. Tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens. A blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye. Should all recognize that. As through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as the studies bloom, whereas a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossoms I am for. I spill my pens and needles on the floor trying to stitch the leather, X by X. My dangerous bright needles point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify incarnations as Christ flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but cause. Word roots blossom in speechless messages. There's the other thing. 
the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, he's in the dictionary, a pink variety of clove. Carnazio, the Latin meaning flesh, is if the bud's essential oil brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy, the stem squeaks in my scissors, child, it's me. He turns the pages to clove and reads aloud, the clove, spice, dried from the flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads, from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I've sown. The flesh laid bare, threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloom from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ when I was four. What's going on? What do you see? The crucifixion. Sorry? The crucifixion. Say, say your name. Myrna. Say it. Myrna. Myrna. Say, can you okay to take it off? Yeah. Say what you were saying, because I'm not sure. The crucifixion. Explain it. Well, because of the nails and um, the blood and what else? I, I just can see Jesus and he calls out for his daddy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good for you. Anybody else? Robert, repeat it. Anybody else? My father. <laughs> Yeah, he, to me, he's just so, he's so representative of intellectual, academic. She, she, she's got this fascination, whatever it means for her. His first thought, first thought, go to the dictionary. It's just, it's so complicated. Anybody else on the beloved, the daddy, daddy, you know, for the word blossoms? Is that clear? I mean, can everybody see? Here's a poem about a four-year-old. How many people, if we had been present in that room, what would we have seen except a young girl pricking her finger? Hopkins saw Christ in the bird. Mackenbird was finding Christ when she was four years old. Here's the claim I'm going to make right now, too, about this poem, because it's not only showing that in an instant that most people just pass over, you know, something happened. Something was going on. It has to. There is no way our God, everything God does is to bring good out of evil. He's a good God. He never stops. He doesn't abrogate our free wills. He honors them, which means he's constantly at work trying to bring good out of the stupid things we do, but he's always there. Here are these poets who see this goodness at work in these ordinary things when ordinarily we don't see them. It's like they're teaching us to see 
I'm going to make one more claim here, and then I want to read this passage from O'Connor to, to leave tonight. Um, I think this poem's also about a calling. Priest Prophet's king. Four-year-old, she had this extraordinary love of words, enough so that one day she could do this. So it's not just about a four-year-old pricking. I really believe it's about a calling. If you go back to the lines about word blossoms, you know, where, um, uh, word blossoms in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does, she, she wants, what I was talking about, she wants to incarnate spirit. She wants to give these things a body. And in this poem, she's celebrating um, the crucifixion. Um, and I think a calling. That something happened when she was four that stayed with her. So this thing of a calling, every one of us, not the Protestant world, as Catholics, we are called to be priests, prophets, kings. Prophets. We are asked to bring Christ to the world. And we know that prophets are not liked. They're generally hated. And yet all these poems or pieces that I've been reading are, are poets who are finding God present in extraordinary ways. There's something prophetic going on. Okay, here's the last one. Um, this is from Flannery O'Connor's novel, The Violent Bared Way. It's her greatest novel. She's an American poet Catholic. She's one of the most important modern short story writers, probably one of the best short story writers in the modern world. Her last word was called The Violent Bared Away, and it comes from this title. I don't even go into this because it's too difficult. I just want to read this short passage and then stop. She takes this title from this quote from Matthew. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent beareth away. What does that passage mean? We've heard it, I'm sure, numerous times. What does it mean? Because I think lots of people get it wrong. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent beareth away. Okay? And um, the story is about a young boy who was raised by his great uncle to be a prophet. His great uncle is a prophet, sees himself as a prophet, and wants the boy to become a prophet. Um, so he does everything he can to help this kid prepare to be a prophet. Everything the kid does is resistant. He fights, he's spiteful, he's angry, he's not going to... Everything the, the great uncle does, um, he opposes. Just in principle. You can't hear a response come out of his mouth without hearing spite and anger and disobedience. And, um, the story opens when the great uncle dies. That's not a small thing. The story begins when, with the death of somebody, and it's the beginning of what happens with this young boy who's trying to do everything he can to escape God and this calling of being a prophet. Um, when it opens, the uncle, the great uncle's dead. He just dies that morning. The great nephew comes in, finds him, and he starts digging a hole to bury him. But he doesn't want to do it because it's just he lives in resentment and spite. So he goes outside and starts digging this hole. Finally starts drinking and gets drunk, gets drunk. When he wakes up from his stupor, he goes to the house thinking that his great uncle is still in the house. He sets fire to it because he knows that one of the men that his uncle affected would have wanted to burn him. He's doing it for this man. 
He doesn't know it, but this Negro has come along and buried his grandfather, or his um, great uncle. So when he leaves, he thinks his great uncle is still in the house being burned. He doesn't know that this Negro wanted to give him a Christian burial and take care of him. Here's this line at, towards the end of the very first chapter. And I want to read it with this question in mind. What do we see? Remember, the story's about this young boy who's been prepared to be a prophet to take Christ to the world, doing everything he can to resist it. Um, burning the house with his thinking his great uncle is inside. He doesn't know that he's done. He starts running away from the house and turns back to look at it. Here's the description. So once again, what do we see? He crawled under and began to set small fires, building one from another and working his way out of the front porch, leaving the fire behind him, eating, and breathing at the dry tinder and the floorboards of the house. He crossed the front side of the yard and went through the rutted fields without looking back until he reached the edge of the opposite woods. Then he glanced over his shoulder and he saw that the pink moon had dropped through the roof of the shack and was bursting and began to run, forced on through the woods by two bulging silver eyes that grew in immense astonishment at the center of the fire behind him. He could hear it moving up through the black night like a whirling chariot. So what are the two eyes and why this allusion to a chariot? What do we see is happening in this moment? Is everybody following? He's just running, he set fire to the house, he thinks his great uncle is there. He turns back and he sees two bulging silver eyes that grew in immense astonishment at the center of the fire behind him. He could hear it moving up through the black night like a whirling chariot. Any thoughts? In terms of the narrative structure, he's just running. He's going to go to the city now, thinking he's going to flee the country and all that is great get away from the influences of his great uncle, he's going to go to the city, he's going to lead a normal life. He doesn't know what's in store. By the way, it's a great, great novel, by the way. He's going to the city. But in the narrative structure, this is all that's happening. He said, fire the house, he's running away. But there's a couple of things going on here in this passage. What do we see? What are the two eyes? Any thoughts about that? Two lions? Hmm? Did you say lions? Eyes. 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 Forced on through the woods by two bulging silver eyes that grew in immense astonishment at the center of the fire behind them. It's like two eyes are in astonishment approaching him. Any thoughts? By the way, I hope everybody knows literature is not, it's not like there's definitive answers. It's always good to just turn these things over. But anybody want to offer a thought?
Can you flesh that out quickly? What, what, what happened then? Remember in the Elijah story, um, at the end of Elijah's reign as prophet, he's preparing Elisha. And just before um, that happens, Elijah's saying to Elisha, don't come with me. And Elisha says, there's no way I'm not going to come with you when he comes. Then Elijah takes his mantle and strikes the water, I think, so they can walk across it. And then he's taken up to heaven in a chair of fire. And at that moment, Elijah picks up the Elisha. mantle, Elisha. strikes the water, and crosses over himself. So it's an exchange of the mantle from one prophet to another. And it's image in the chariots of fire. So I think what's happening, I mean, you wouldn't know it unless you were looking closely. But what O'Connor is suggesting is this is that moment of passing the mantle from you know, one to another violently here, because young Tarwater wants nothing to do with his uncle, he's going to flee. But something's going to happen in the city. If you want to find out what, you've got to read it. It's a short novel, it's a really good novel. Anyway, um, both of those, like Supernatural Love and Violent Paraguay, are about answering the call to be prophets, to take Christ to the world. Um, amazing, amazing works. Um, I'll pick up some of this in the next talk, but the whole, the whole point of this was Father put this talk series together um, for one reason. I mean, it was to get people back in church, and for me, it, 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 it is so much, as you know, it's so much a question of how well we see. What do we see when we receive the Eucharist? When we come, do we take it for granted? Um, Suzanne heard from a friend once, I think, or heard about a friend from a friend. The guy was Islamic, and a Catholic was telling him his belief in the real presence. And the, the Islam man was um, stunned at disbelief. He said, if that's what you really believe, if I came up to receive the Eucharist, I would um, prostrate myself. I would lie flat on the ground. Mm. You know, what do we see when we um, receive the Eucharist? Are we seeing Christ in the world? If we learn to see him there more, will we bring more to ourselves in what we bring of ourselves when we go to the Eucharist? And will we see more of him? What can be said about Christ? He's behind everything. He can look at the sun, created the universe. To come to the Eucharist is to receive all of that. All of that. And, and know that when we do, we're getting closer and closer and closer to that moment I described, you know, in that passage from John. We read it in this time. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes thus in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Taking the Eucharist is not just taking Christ in. Yes, it's that. But it's so much more. Do we see that? Do we carry that with us? Good questions, okay? Thank you all. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you.